This morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, reading from verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Someone has the page number in the Pew Bible. Could... 1187? Thank you, Carol. 1187 in the Pew Bibles. 1187. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, brothers... We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Wherefore, he who rejects, rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Amen. Well, sometimes if you're watching an American uh, program on television, maybe on Amazon Prime or Netflix, it may begin with the words, previously on, and then the name of the program, and then it will give you a brief recap of what happened in last week's episode. Well, you'll be relieved to hear that I'm not going to give you a long recap of last week's sermon, but I do want to turn your attention back to the last verse of the last chapter of 1 Thessalonians. So 
So that's chapter 3, verse 13, which begins by saying, May he strengthen your hearts so you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God. Who is the subject of that sentence? Who is it that's doing the work? Well, it's, it's He, isn't it? May He strengthen your hearts. And if we go back to verse 12, we see who the He is. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other just uh, sorry, and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. So it's the Lord. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow. May He strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when the Lord Jesus Christ comes with all His holy ones. Does that mean that we are completely passive and that we have nothing to do in the great battle that is the Christian life. Well, of course it doesn't. We are utterly dependent upon God to will and to do, but we have to be active and engaged and determined as we seek to grow and to progress and to take ground in our Christian walk. And chapter 4 is really a reminder that Paul told them as much when he was with them in Thessalonica. And as he reminds them that he told them this, he also exhorts them. So he's multitasking here. He is reminding them that he's already told them this and as he reminds them, he exhorts them once again. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. What a great truth that is, that we are able to live lives which please God. We are able to live lives which bring pleasure to God. To think that He would even notice the lives that we live is amazing. But to think that our lives might bring Him pleasure is all the more wonderful. What better goal to set for your life than that? Is life just about having some fun in the brief time that you're here on planet earth or fulfilling a, a bucket list of challenges before you die? That's, that's what some people think. But here the apostle Paul tells us, teaches us, that we can give ourselves to an infinitely greater goal, that we can live to the glory and to the pleasure of God. This is the very life that we were always meant to live, the life that we were made to live. 
But we can't do that unless and until we know what the will of God is, what He desires for us and from us. So Jesus sent His messengers into the world, His apostles. That's what apostle means. It means uh, messenger or ambassador, we would say, I suppose. Someone who is a representative of another person. And uh, they are charged with the responsibility of taking a gift or a message from that person to other people. So, an apostle is an appointed messenger. And this letter comes from one of those appointed messengers, from one of the apostles, from the apostle Paul. And though it comes from him, it comes ultimately from Jesus. It carries with it the very authority of Jesus, as did the apostolic teaching he gave when he was with them. Look at verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And you might say then, well, 2,000 years later here in Airdrie, we're at a big disadvantage because the apostles have all died out. They're not writing any more letters. They're not visiting churches. We can't put in a request to have the Apostle Paul come and visit us and teach us some stuff. And that's true. But we're not at a disadvantage because we have the Apostles' teaching recorded for us in the New Testament. That's what the New Testament is. It's a record of the teaching of the Apostles. And therefore, it carries the very authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. To accept it is to accept His teaching. To reject it is to reject Him. And maybe Paul knows how tough this teaching will be or how unpopular it will be with some because twice in quick succession he reminds them of the authority that this teaching carries. So verse 2, which we've just read, it carries the authority of the Lord Jesus. And then if you look down in verse 7, the one who rejects this instruction, says Paul, does not reject man, but God. So what kind of life are we to live that we might be pleasing to God? Well, firstly, we are to live a holy life. A holy life. I'm hoping that will appear on the screen. Thank you very much. Verses 1 to 8, that's the real emphasis of this uh, chapter. And it should be no surprise to us who are Christians. We are children. We have been adopted into the family of the God who is holy. Imagine your dad was famous for his shiny, blue, Sinatra-esque eyes. Wouldn't you want people to say to you, oh, your eyes are just like your dad's? 
But I imagine your mum was one of the world's most beautiful women. Wouldn't it be a compliment were people to look at you and say, oh, you are your mum's double? Well, how much more should we want to bear a resemblance to our Heavenly Father, the God who is holy and perfect and pure, infinite in beauty? Peter, in his first letter, writes, As obedient children, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. We are children of God. We are followers of Jesus, the Lamb without blemish, set apart for God. And we are those who have the Holy Spirit. How unbefitting it would be for us were we to claim all of these titles and yet to live a life unholy in the eyes of of God. Australian theologian David Williams says, sanctification is the process of bringing Christian practice into line with Christian status. We are children of God. If we've been adopted into the family of God, if we have uh, come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. We are children of God and sanctification. The process of being made more holy is just becoming that which God has already made us. And it's all included. What our mind chooses to think about and to meditate on where our eyes look and linger, the words our tongue speaks, the stuff that we put into our stomachs, what we choose to do with our hands, and so on. Our will is in charge of every part of our body. And our Lord ought to be in charge of our will. Jesus demands to be Lord of all. Paul is writing to real people in a real world. And in some ways, of course, their world was very different to ours. And yet, in the ways that truly matter, it was very much the same. Macedonia, eh, not Macedonia, Thessalonica, which was in Macedonia, was a, a, a bustling big city by the standards of the, the day. And it was a center for idolatry. So everywhere these people looked, there was temptation. And the people around them 
thought of these things, thought of this idolatry and this wickedness and this perversion as being perfectly normal and natural and healthy. So there was great pressure on these believers to, to, to drift away, to give themselves over. Many of them, most of them, almost certainly, would have grown up with this worldview that said these things were, were okay. And now they're having to unlearn all of this as they learn what it means to make Jesus Christ Lord. So you, you sense again the heart for Paul for these young Christians. The concern that he has that they would stay true to Jesus. That they would remain free from all of the stuff that would damage them and pull them away and bind them up and hold them back from the life that Christ calls them to live. Every lust and every longing must bow the knee before King Jesus. And we are free in Christ from that endless hunt from, for satisfaction in false gods, which always inevitably leave us feeling disappointed and empty in the end. We all stumble. We all sin. And how we need to remember that our God is the God who is full of grace and mercy. We don't have a limited supply or quota. It, it, it never runs dry. But that's no excuse to get comfortable with the sin in our lives, to invite it in, to give it control. That's not the life of a Christian. At times we stumble, at times we fail, at times we fall, but we are always at war with the sin in our lives. That's the key. Therefore, says Paul in Romans 12, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then we move from holiness to love. Verses 9 and 10. We are to live a holy life and we are to live a loving life, a life of love. We thought about that at length last week in Thess Thessalonians. We looked at chapter 3, how overjoyed Paul was when he received the report from Timothy of these believers' love. They're doing really well. And in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4, you get the sense that their love for each other is spilling out into the lives of others. They are loving each other, but they've not arrived. There's room for more. They're not yet a community of people that point 
perfectly to God, the God who is one yet in three persons, living together in perfect, loving relationship and community. That's a great thing. It's great that they are loving each other. But they need to press on. They need to grow. They need to never uh, settle down with how far they have come. While the people of God are in union, says Anthony Burgess, oh, the wonderful help they are to one another. They provoke one another to good works and stir up one another's graces. But take these coals away from one another and the fire goes out. How true that love and holiness go together. A loving community of God's people will urge and exhort and encourage each other to grow in grace, to grow in purity, to grow in love for each other and for the Lord. And how we need to work in this, to work on putting each other's needs ahead of our own needs, just like Jesus did for us. To do that because we are Christian men and women, to be intentional about it, to challenge ourselves to growth and to rejoice as we see ourselves grow and mature to the pleasure and glory of God. So a holy life, a loving life, and lastly, verses 11 and 12, which are the more challenging verses, I think, to interpret. Uh, An honorable life. So what are we to make of these verses? Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you. I mean, what kind of ambition is that, to live a quiet life? We, we live in a world that is, is filled with ambition, but the ambition is, is never to live a quiet life. It's to, it's to be noticed. It's to get to the top of the tree. It's to be famous. It's to be an influencer. To be successful. And we can easily defend that, can't we? We can, we can say that popularity will provide a platform for us to share Jesus with the world. Well, I think it's likely that what Paul means is not so much don't make a noise or even don't be successful. You might stumble into success by working hard at whatever you do, and that's okay. 
But I think what Paul means is don't go looking for trouble. Don't provoke conflict. And for some of us, this is a real problem. We think that we are reaching out to people in love, but the way that it comes across is that we are being contentious. We are looking to provoke people. We are looking to get into arguments and fights and always be right and to make other people look foolish. To always have the right answers. There's a balance to be found between, on one hand, being cowardly and never saying anything, hiding our faith away, and on the other hand, being a very contentious and provocative person, person, always looking to find flaws in the arguments of others. And maybe in their youthful zeal, that's the way these Christians are leaning. Paul says to them, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Don't get hysterical. Don't get carried away. Don't get into fights. Keep out of the business of others. And work with your hands. All work, when it's honest work, done well, done to the best of our ability, is good work. When we work for the glory of God, when we work as if Jesus were our boss, when we work well because we are Christians, And that is pleasing to God. And we have a great tendency to divide work between the, the sacred or the spiritual and the secular. And the, this type of work is really pleasing to God and working with your hands is not, not so much. That's completely false. All work is honorable and glorifying to God when we work as Christians, when we work well for Him. And it's amazing how many of the people we have, of the heroes of Scripture, worked with their hands. David was a shepherd. Lydia was a seller of purple dye or cloth. The disciples were mainly fishermen. Paul was a tent maker. Jesus spent most of his earthly life as a carpenter. These were normal, everyday jobs. If you have an everyday, normal job, do it to the best of your ability. Work well with a smile on your face. Be good to your boss and to your colleagues. 
give them no cause to discredit you or to discredit the God that you serve. Work to the glory of God and he will be pleased and honored. It seems that some in Thessalonica had stopped working. Maybe they thought that their jobs weren't spiritual enough because that was a a common Greek philosophy at that time that that would have they would have been familiar with. But I think it's more likely from the context of the letter, and we'll see this next week, that they had a false understanding of the second coming of Christ. So some of them are thinking to themselves, well, Jesus is coming soon anyway, so there's no need for us to work. Why bother? Why bother working hard, slogging away, Saving up when we know that any day now, Jesus will arrive and everything will change. That's not what Paul had taught. These are clearly not people who have legitimately retired. And if that's you, don't think that you need to be outside the the job center tomorrow morning. Uh, you do have to think about how you use your time and your talents, the resources that you have, but you, you don't have to, to go and get a job. Uh, retiring through age or health does not dishonor God. And that's the real underlying concern here. That they were becoming a burden to those who were having to work to keep them. And they were gaining a reputation for being lazy. And in so doing, they were dishonoring the name of the God that they professed to know and to love and to serve. Their lifestyle would not win the respect of outsiders, quite the opposite. But if they worked well, if they worked honorably, we might say, and if they're not contentious, and if they live in holiness and purity and love, and if they live in a community of people who are loving each other, serving each other, blessing each other, encouraging each other, then wouldn't that bring great glory and honor to the name and great joy and pleasure to the hearts of their God? What greater goal to give yourself to, to spend yourself on than that. I said recently that it's not enough to just live a nice life, and that is true. The gospel is good news, and to share news, you have to use words. We have to share the good news of who Jesus is, of what Jesus has done, of all that Jesus offers, of what Jesus requires in response with words. But the lives that we live matter. They will speak volumes about our true treasure. 
The life that you live will speak volumes about what you worship, what you value. It will add or remove weight from your witness. It has, by the grace of God, the capacity to bring joy to the heart of God. So live in a way that pleases Him. Don't crush yourself with disappointment or despair when you fail as you will, as I will. He is the God of grace and of mercy and of love. He is patient with His people. But press on. Press ahead. Leave what's behind and move forward into all that He has for you. That you might lay hold of that great goal of knowing Him and loving Him and serving Him and pleasing Him. And whatever you do, whether in words or deeds, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.